0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the podcast, I have Professor Robert Frank. He teaches economics and management at the graduate school up in Cornell and is the author of a number of books. Uh, he's probably best known for the Winner Take All Society, a very prescient book published in 1995, uh, way ahead of a lot of the the more recent commentary on changes in society. Uh, most recently, he's published Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. It's a fascinating conversation about how we all tend to underemphasize and and just not realize the impact that random fortune has in our life for both better and worse. He he also um, wrote a textbook with some guy named Ben Bernanke on economics. Uh, Really, I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation if you're at all interested in how, not the politics, but the economics of of income inequality and how these things have developed and what their subsequent impact is on both – efficiency and productivity of of the economy, and what it means for society, for the middle class, for changes in, in corporate structures, I think you'll find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Robert Frank. This is
2: Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My special guest this week is Professor Robert H. Frank. He is a professor of management and economics at Cornell's Johnson School of Management. That's the graduate school up at Cornell. He has won numerous teaching awards and all sorts of other accolades, comes to us with a BS in mathematics from Georgia Tech, has a master's in statistic and a PhD in economics from Berkeley, and is the author of a number of books, several of which we'll talk about later today, most recently, Success and Luck. Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the textbook he co-wrote with some gentleman named Ben Bernanke, Principles of Economics, and he he probably is best known for a book published in 95, The Winner Take All Society, that won all sorts of Critics' Choice Award, Notable Book of the Year by the New York Times, Business Week's Top 10 list for 1995, Uh, Robert Frank. welcome to Bloomberg very what a pleasure so that that was the short version of your CV <laughs> I could have gone on if I if I started discussing the published papers we would be here till next Tuesday uh, but one of the things that, that really struck me about your background is how long you've been studying income inequality how did how did you first get? interested in that subject.
2: Yeah, it's it's become quite fashionable now. But it has. when I first started writing about it, it was very difficult to find anybody who cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my own interest in it was kindled by my interest in biology, where... Where if you know an animal's rank in whatever group uh, it's alpha, in,
0: beta, what have
2: you? Right, that's the that's the most powerful predictor of that animal's ability to project its stuff into the next round. Mm-hmm. So, so if if there's a famine, it's not the high-ranking animals that starve. Uh, the high-ranking animals typically have much better mating opportunities. There's a whole variety of reasons for that. But if if you don't care about where you rank, you're probably not coming into the world very well equipped to deal with the competitive fray that we're we're in, uh, and, and, so, and
0: it is quite a competitive world, especially when it comes to economics.
2: On the other hand, uh, to really succeed in in today's world, uh, it's essential to be uh, a trusted member of an effective team. You have to be able to. Be seen by others as trustworthy and cooperative. Uh, really effective teams, teams with talented people, have their pick. They don't need to hire any jerks for their team. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're not a person they feel they can rely on. When you're out of view and you have a chance to serve your own interests at the expense of the teams, then uh, why should they have you on, your, on their team? They've got better choices. So it's a kind of a complex balancing act. Uh, you have to be somebody who's, who's attractive to others and trustworthy uh, in situations where you could cheat them, uh, but they have to feel confident you won't, but you have to also care about getting ahead. So it's a little bit of a balance in society versus what we see out in the wild. Exactly. Society has done an enormous amount to try to tame the, the competition. We have all sorts of regulations that prevent arms races that get out of control in nature. Uh, but I think you know, the income inequality problem is, is maybe one of the early signs that our attempts to keep things in balance have been falling short.
0: So let's talk about income inequality a little bit. I want to mention, it's funny that you said how fashionable it is today. I'm going to pull a quote from either your book it was or it was a, a paper that you had written around the same time the book had come out that I thought was fascinating. And this is from 1995. quote, "The incomes of the top 1% have more than doubled in real after inflation terms between 1979 and 1989, a period during which the median income was roughly flat and which the bottom quintile, the bottom 20% of earners, saw their incomes actually fall by 10%. Now, that sounds like something that could have come out a year or two ago about the prior decade. And yet, this was not a big issue back in 1995.
2: I think we were just starting to see clear evidence of those trends that were beginning. They they began sometime in the late 60s or early 70s. There's still some quarreling about when Mm -hmm. the, the exact moment was. There probably wasn't an exact moment, but... But uh, as it's gone on longer and as the multiples have gotten bigger, more and more people have taken interest. And, you know, there's been a lot of very serious work in recent decades on it.
0: Well, you, you were writing Piketty type stuff 20 years before Piketty was writing them.
2: Yeah, well. It's not always who gets there first, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, who wins the prize. Yeah, Piketty's gotten uh, a lot of very well-justified attention uh, on these issues. And he's done the rest of us who are in the trenches writing about this subject an enormous service. You know, we, can, we can now write a piece on, on the issue, and people will pay attention to it, whereas it would have gone uh, lost in the shuffle so, 20 so years that's, ago. So
0: that's a really interesting point. I find first, it's amazing how similar the data sounds 20 years ago to today. That's astonishing. But was income inequality all that obvious back then to people who were looking at it? Was the boom in technology, remember 90s, a huge boom in technology, the stock market was on fire. Were we just otherwise occupied and not paying attention? How did this slip by relatively unnoticed right in the middle of the 90s?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I don't have a compelling <laughs> answer for it. Uh, it If you take the early onset of the, the date range, the late 60s, mm-hmm. uh, as the the time when income inequality started growing rapidly, then 1995 uh, is plenty of time for a lot of people to have noticed it, and, and many people did notice it. It's just that the the subject hadn't really caught on as a, as one of general interest.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Robert Frank. He teaches up at Cornell, both uh, economics and management. Let's talk a little bit about The Winner-Take-All Society, the book you co-authored in 95 that seems to be quite prescient about a variety of changes that have taken place in... Uh, in our economy, Uh, let let me start out with a a quote. What do Boris Becker, Alan Dershowitz, Diane Sawyer, Michael Jordan, L. McPherson and John Griffin all have in common? They are beneficiaries of the winner-take-all markets. Now what's interesting is how memorable all those names are and still, unless you're a millennial, you probably know who all those names are because there was a lot of longevity to it. Explain to us what the winner-take-all society is.
2: There, there's a kind of market. We've seen uh, this market structure going back a long, long time, actually. Uh, it was written about in the 19th century uh, in similar terms to the ones we use to describe it. it it's a market where if you have uh, a task that can be done market-wide by a single person, then essentially you've got the conditions for a big tournament. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a, a valuable task, typically, if somebody can serve the whole market. And if uh, there are thousands of thousands of people trying to uh, be anointed the person who gets to do that, then the competition's pretty bitter, and there's a lot of bunching of talent and effort. Uh, all the people who are finalists in that contest are going to be really, really good. But typically, uh, one will emerge, uh, and it will be someone who's uh, maybe a a little bit better than most of the others, but rarely the best contestant. Uh, He's also had a lucky break or two along the way, Mm -hmm. but when the winner emerges there's a huge difference between the reward that person gets and the rewards received by others who were really so close to being as good that no one could really tell it was almost an arbitrary choice to anoint the winner and and so you get a situation where you know most people feel comfortable if somebody works 1% harder than others or is 1% more talented well fine let him be paid 1% more but here here you have some but he Emerge, who's 1% more talented, and, and uh, that person might earn 10,000 times as much as, as the others, who are almost as
0: equal. So let, let's use Michael Jordan as an example. Wins six NBA finals, uh, which was a huge run, but at the same time has this amazing set of endorsement deals. He makes hundreds of millions, literally hundreds of millions more then he's paid as an athlete to do all his endorsements and other business ventures, and at the time, nobody else is even close to him.
2: Yeah, there there would be plenty of people who would do uh, his job for a tiny fraction mm-hmm. of what he gets. You would, I'm guessing. I would have been willing, but... You have more what? height than me, so you, you can you can do that. Well, height, height's not all you need. You watch, <laughs> you watch the highlight reel of Michael Jordan, and you think you're seeing something in slow motion because it,
0: it really does seem that he's hanging in midair
2: right. for 35 seconds. before. And making
0: decisions on the fly that are not only instantaneous— but three steps ahead of everybody else, and then executing on those decisions right. while hanging in midair. It's, so, it's so amazing. maybe
2: he's not the best example of a winner who's only a little bit better than the others. Maybe G- like give us another example. Like Secretariat, he he won by okay. thirty lengths. But but typically, it's not it's not that far ahead of the field when we see a winner emerge. It, you know, it could have been any one of a number of people who emerged that mm-hmm. way.
0: And. And, well, you mentioned Alan Dershowitz or El McPherson or John Grisham. There are a lot of fantastic novelists who sell millions of books. Is that—and their books become movies. Is John Grisham a, a winner-take-all he, example? He's definitely an example of someone who's been a, a, a really big winner in a winner-take-all market. So not only uh, have the books done well, but, you know, a dozen of his books have become really big movies. And and
2: the the— surest way to publish a bestseller is to have already published mm-hmm. one. Uh, if you've published two, then you're even more likely to have a bestseller. And and then once you've got a string of them, the movie people start bidding against one another for the rights. Yeah, the the rewards really do explode once you're on a successful track. But But if you would go back early in a person's career... It wouldn't be so clear that that would be the person who would emerge and become the big winner. Even in Michael Jordan's case, he was cut from the basketball team right. at, at a couple of stages. High school, right? Know. Didn't do well.
0: Uh, what about J.K. Rowling? I think her book was turned down a dozen different publishing shops.
2: And and she uh, just on a lark published a, a detective novel or a whodunit under a pseudonym mm-hmm. after she'd quit the Harry Potter series mm-hmm. and. Uh, the book got good reviews, but sold tepidly. Uh, then Until it was revealed, it was leaked that the author really was J.K. That, Rowling. That's air quotes it, around leaks. <laughs> it, it shot to the top of the bestseller list. So yeah, having been successful
0: is the is the
2: biggest thing that that can assure your success in the next round.
0: So so, what impact does this star system have on society, and and what does it mean for? the long term economic efficiency of of how things run well it's it, it's got good aspects to it and also some ones
2: that ought to concern us so if you think of piano manufacture uh, in the last century, it was a local industry. why because it costs so much to ship pianos that mm-hmm. if, if if you tried to sell one too far from the factory, the shipping costs would eat you alive and and then canals opened up, railroads, uh, the, the market uh, expanded enormously that could be served by a single producer. So the good thing for consumers, if there really were some producers who were better than others, now they could extend their reach. So you'd, you'd be buying uh, a better piano than you would have had access to before. The downside of that is that it tends to lead to an enormous increase in the concentration of income. Uh, the, the people who were thriving in local markets before, now they compete to see who's going to be the one who dominates the, the broader market that's now serviceable by these firms since transportation costs are low. And and the the losers in that contest, they've got to go find something else to do, basically. <laughs>
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Robert Frank of Cornell, and we were discussing earlier uh, how the middle class has begun to fall behind going back as far as the 1960s or 70s. You put out a book called Falling Behind, How Rising Inequality Harms the Middle Class. And again, some of the data points in this are just astonishing. I want to reference the Toil Index uh, from a paper you put out in 2011. Listen to this data. This is astonishing. Between 1970 and 2000, the median earner would have gone from working a little more than 40 hours a week in order to be able to afford the median-priced home to working close to 70 hours a week, almost double. How did that happen?
2: Yeah, it it was the monthly number of hours you had to work in order to earn enough money to gain access to the median price house. And and that's an interesting number because if you're in the middle – You would think you would earn the middle, right? You would want to send your kids to a a school of at least average quality. And to do that, you have to buy the median price house because as is true in every country, school quality tracks house prices in the neighborhoods very closely. So, Mm -hmm. So every parent wants to do that. Houses have gotten bigger uh, during uh-huh. that time. That's partly why families have to work more hours to be able to afford access to the, the median house. And it's just that others like them are spending a higher percentage of their income too. So you, you've got to match what they do or else you fall behind and it's your kids who go to schools with the metal detectors out front.
0: What, what has the um, addition of a second breadwinner in a household done to this, this data? Uh,
2: so that's a really interesting question. In, in the 50s, we had one-earner families. Uh, now it's much more common to have two earners. So families should be doing much better. Well, they don't seem to be doing much better. And, and one reason is that a lot of the extra money has gone into a bidding war for houses in the better school districts. So mm-hmm. we've got more money now. What's, what's the first thing we want to do? Send our kids to better schools. Well, other families want to do that too. And it's as if uh, everybody stands up to see better. Nobody sees any better than before. We just bid up the prices of the houses in the better school districts. Half of all kids go to bottom half schools, the there, same as before. There's there's no way around that that math, is there? That's that's the the cruel dilemma that inequality confronts people with.
0: That Lake Wobegon exists just in fiction, and, and exactly all of the children are not above average. It can't be. Cannot be. So let me let me throw another data point out that I thought was fascinating from uh, Falling Behind. The share of total income going to the top one percent of earners was eight point nine percent in nineteen seventy six. By two thousand and seven, it had risen to twenty-three and a half percent, just about tripling. During the same period, the average inflation adjusted hourly wage declined by more than seven percent. So the med- so last time we looked at this data in ninety five. The top 1% were growing, the bottom 20% were falling, and the median was flat. Here we see the top 1% growing much more in this time period, and and the average is actually falling. So what's the drivers of this?
2: You know, I think it's the same technological changes that uh, Phil Cook and I talked about, and that indeed Alfred Marshall had talked about uh, in the 1890s. Uh, mm-hmm. As technology lets the most able performers in each domain extend their reach, uh, there's just going to be a bigger slice of the market that they can effectively serve. And then the bidding for their services heats up. Uh, We don't need more than two or three sopranos at this point. A hundred years ago, the only way to listen to music was live live in in concert. But now we listen to music mostly in recorded form. Uh, Once the master discs have been Stamped out, uh, they can make copies, MP3s, uh, other media are essentially zero cost to copy, and so the real trick is to find the the performer who's better, in at least in the public's eye, by a small margin. People want that performer and no other.
0: So this this leads to a really interesting question. Uh, you have the current impact of technology and globalization and automation and and more and more of the winner-take-all society, pre-19th century, it was almost a feudal system where you had the one local monarch and everybody worked for them. That almost leads me to think that the post-World War II middle class was an aberration.
2: That's a theme in Thomas Piketty's book, that the, the period of post-war relative equality was the aberration, not the mm-hmm. norm. I think the assumption all along had been, well, that's normal and we're moving away from it. I don't think uh, that issue is completely settled, but the the technological forces that are causing incomes to concentrate at the top, those haven't even begun to finish playing out. You know, Amazon is going to continue displacing retailers until there almost aren't any more retailers, and we're a long way from that
0: happening. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Robert Frank. He is the author of Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy, as well as The Winner-Take-All Society and Principles of Economics, a textbook co-written with some guy named Ben Bernanke. Uh, Let's jump right into success and luck, because this is a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. Part of the reason is, in this uh, series, in these interviews that I do, you would be amazed at how many billionaires say, and of course, I got lucky early in my career, or this happened and it was just good fortune. And I know a lot of people think that that's just a false humility, but I think and have observed that folks really, especially people who are wildly successful, I don't mean, hey, good job, good career, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, wildly successful, winner-take-all, top of their field, billionaires, many of them reference the role of luck in their success. Why is that?
2: I think that's a great thing when you see it happen, and you do see it happen. I have known successful people who are very quick to acknowledge that they had breaks and wouldn't be where they are now except for them. But... Still, there are many who, who whose position seems to be, I did it all on my own. Uh, think, think back to 2012 when Elizabeth Warren gave her, you didn't build that speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, a video that went viral. It had millions of angry comments directed at her. Uh, what did she say? She said, You built a business, it succeeded, that's great, but just remember, you shipped your goods to market on roads, the rest of us helped build, you hired workers, the community paid to educate, police and firemen that we hired helped protect you. Uh, Part of the social contract is to pay forward so the next group that comes along will enjoy those same opportunities to Mm -hmm. succeed that you did. Uh, I don't hear anything controversial in those remarks, but people were very angered by them. And so if you, if you tell a rich person who's beginning with the, the posture, I did it all myself, that, hey, you were lucky also, uh, which is almost always true— uh, they tend to hear you saying that oh you don't belong where you were you're you're, you're not skillful yeah. you're... Uh, that's not the message no the people who win in these markets are almost invariably really skillful and they work really hard so so it's in a way natural that when they try to explain to themselves why do they succeed that they focus on their hard work and talent that's a a big pack
0: factor in in and what did bring them to the top but they were also very lucky. So so let's take an example uh, from the book that I thought was pretty fascinating. How lucky of a guy was Bill Gates. Oh Bill Gates uh to his uh everlasting
2: credit is really quick to acknowledge how lucky he was. He had one of the few schools that had a computer lab in it uh, he was born in 1955 didn't exist uh, where... If, he, if he'd been born 10 years earlier, that wouldn't have existed. If he'd been 10 years later being born, uh, everyone people would have. would have been all, all over that already. Mm-hmm. He was there at the right time. Uh, he got access to the computer labs at the University of Washington. Like an
0: actual lab with real-time response, not... The punch cards. Not that the rest where you of carry to your deck with. up the yeah. hill
2: and wait three days to see what happened. Right. He, he
0: was in high school. That's a that's an amazing he, thing. He had
2: and he'll say there's probably what wasn't a, a, a group of a dozen worldwide who had opportunities like he had. But then even so, you would never know who he was probably if IBM hadn't uh, sort of in a short sighted move given him the license to sell the operating system to its personal computer that it was about to launch. They didn't have high hopes for sales of that machine, and so he ended up being the richest man on the
0: planet uh,
2: as he's quick to concede because he got a few really well-timed breaks.
0: The, the technology lore is he goes out and purchases a version of DOS for $50,000 from a company who the the urban legend is that founder eventually commits suicide um, years later when he figures out what he does, sells this to IBM, and IBM never says, yeah, we're going to buy this from you. Instead, they'll say, yeah, we'll pay you for each one. We'll pay you less, but every time we sell a machine, right. we'll give you a royalty. And and that was an amazing... But make no mistake, uh, Gates is really smart. He's
2: very talented, very hardworking, but that combination of things
0: isn't sufficient. So the the guys who, who come in second, the men and women who come in second, they're really smart, they're really hardworking, they're really creative and skillful and opportunistic, but some of them just don't get a lucky break and, and they don't achieve the sort of success that we see from the smart, hardworking, lucky ones. Bryan Cranston, I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched
2: Breaking Bad. He was unbelievably good in it. When Vince Gilligan proposed casting him in the Walter White role, Mm -hmm. which was the heart of that series, uh, the studio bosses said, no way, this is a guy who's never had a leading dramatic role. He's a middle-aged sitcom guy. He uh, was the
0: goofy dad in Malcolm in in the the Middle, middle uh, which I had never seen, but people who saw it said,
2: well, he was good. If you
0: saw it, you would have never in a million years imagined him as Walter White. Exactly. Uh, He was a goofball. Funny, but... Certainly not that intense, dramatic persona. So,
2: so the studio people they said, "No, we're going to offer the part to John Cusack." Cusack, totally
0: wrong person for Cusack that. Cusack turned
2: the way. it down. They, all right, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick turned it down. Even o- more wrong. Only for the role. then did they go to Cranston. And now, of course, Cranston is. A superstar. Everybody wants him in their picture, and he was in his mid fifties. He was not going to become a superstar if either Cusack or Broderick had taken that role. That was going to be a fate for him, just like thousands of other actors. They're good enough to succeed,
0: but they don't get their chance. So I've noticed uh, you've written about this. Other people have written about this. The issue of luck versus skill seems to divide along the political spectrum. Some people. Uh, on the left are are faster. Liberals are more quick to attribute luck to people's success. Conservatives have a tendency to attribute skill. Uh, To me, it's luck and success. So so what is the basis of this divide? Yeah,
2: it's a very interesting uh, question. And John Haidt, my friend John Haidt, the psychologist has done some interesting work there are temperamental differences between liberals and conservatives actually the the split between the two groups on the role of luck is is maybe a little more nuanced than our popular impressions mm-hmm. make it seem uh, but you know conservatives are less likely to uh, believe in the challenges to the concept of free will than, than, than liberals are. And so there, there are some similarities in, in belief patterns across the groups. But, but I think if you, if you probe a little more deeply, uh, people from all along the political aisle, if they really think about the examples that they know about, uh, are, are quick to concede that, yeah, it helps It helps to be lucky, uh, being good and working
0: hard by
2: themselves aren't usually
0: enough. So uh, we were speaking earlier about Michael Mobison, who is uh, at Credit Suisse and a professor at, at Columbia who wrote The Success Equation, which looks at skill and luck in, in business, uh, sports and, and investing. And I said, hey, I'm going to be speaking to Robert Frank any questions for him? And he said, "Yes, absolutely." Uh, he gave me a few, but let me give you uh, one or two of, of my favorites. How do we justify CEO pay based on skill, or are there other processes that better explain the current ratio between CEOs and and workers?
2: That ratio, as you know, has exploded. It used to be something like twenty times as mm-hmm. much as the average worker pay in for the 19, CEO uh, in nineteen eighty. The CEO ratio to that average,
0: recently nineteen eighty was twenty. Business to one.
2: Week has tracked the CEO uh, pay to average worker ratio since then, and it, it, it's it's up depending on how large the corporation. It's up around four hundred. Wow, and has has gone higher than that. It's a huge increase. It's it's the ratio itself has exploded by a factor of ten, and there's a lot of argument about why the people talk about crony boards mm-hmm. that are voting favors for their pals who who installed them on the board. You know that happened when I was a boy. We used to hear about um, right. interlocking directorates and but pals you didn't get four hundred on to one ratios. You didn't, and I think. Uh, There are clear examples of waste, fraud, and abuse uh, still, but the world really is a lot more like the NBA now than it was when I was a kid. Uh, Meaning, it's, it's it's all a lot of three-point competi- shots. <laughs> <laughs> it's all competition. What have you done for me lately? If you're not if you're not performing up to the highest standard, if there's somebody we could replace you with who would be even epsilon better, we're, you're out the door. And and I think that's. You know, you don't know who's going to be a good CEO up front. You take your chances, but the uh, the data are pretty clear. If you hire a CEO and the and the performance doesn't follow, then they're on a very short leash now compared to the old days. So,
0: but, but they're on a short leash with a very nice. Parachute they get a very, on the way out. they
2: get a very high salary. Uh, if they don't perform, they're out. They 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 land whole because they get the nice parachute. But think about it. If if you're right about the CEO. Uh, and the CEO really is, let's say, three percent, five percent. If you're, if you're a ten billion dollar company, annual earnings, you know, that's three hundred million difference mm-hmm. on your bottom line. So, so having somebody who's just a little bit better in this kind of market really does translate into a huge difference in the bottom line.
0: Uh, if people want to find your work other than Amazon, where else can they find uh, your writings?
2: I uh, have been for more than a decade a contributor to the economic view column in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it less frequently now, but occasionally I still write one. Uh, mainly, I'm writing books these days. So, so it, I, I'd go to the Amazon page and search out what's available. On, on Twitter, I'm at EconNaturalist.
0: Easy to find you via Google. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. I don't know why I do this every week, but I do. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for doing this. I I'm, I'm was really looking forward to, to chatting you, and, and it, you have not disappointed. It's been great fun to get a chance to, to talk with you. So, so before we get to some questions um, that I skipped over during the broadcast portion, uh, before I forget, so you write an economics, the economics view column for the Times. That's a a monthly, typically in the Sunday business section. Is that right? Yeah, it,
2: it's it depends on how many people are in the rotation, which has varied anywhere from
0: five to ten.
2: But it, it it's come out.
0: But at the same time, there is a Robert Frank who writes for the Times. He's a, a reporter, and he's the author of the book *Richistan*: A, a Journey Through. The American Wealth Boom. How confusing is it to have two Robert Franks, both publishing in The Times, about uh, wealth and, and economic inequality? Even before he started writing for The Times, we were
2: uh, being confused for one another again and again. In fact, The Times published an article about how often people mistook one for the other uh, back in 2007, I think it was. and and That's funny. Probably the best story... Uh, in connection with with people mistaking us for each other, is is uh, an email I got from a friend in Houston. He had seen an announcement for a conference uh, catering to high net worth individuals, and there was in the brochure for the conference a picture of me with him. You no, know, a picture just of me. Uh, I was going to be talking about uh, high net worth strategies or this this and that. That's not something he thought I would be likely to be doing, so he wrote back and asked me, and I said, "Wow, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm speaking at that conference, this is the first I've heard about it." So I made some inquiries, and it turned out that they had tried to book the other Robert Frank. They called the Speakers Bureau, who represents me, and booked me instead oh, by geez. mistake. Uh, the Speakers Bureau uh, requires a hefty non-refundable fee up front, uh, uh-huh. deposit, and the Speakers Bureau refused to refund uh, the fee to the the client uh, even after it became clear that they hadn't meant to engage me. They said, well, he's willing to, to talk to you. Uh, we're, we're prepared to send him. So I got a, a fat check for doing nothing that time. <laughs> That's great.
0: Well, you, uh, you did go and speak, right? I did not go You and did speak. not. They no, just gave you- I did nothing. Now that sounds like an economic inefficiency, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I want to get to a couple more questions that we skipped earlier, uh, some of which are, I, I find really, really intriguing on success and luck. So uh, again, another Michael Mobison question. We tend to attribute our success to skill and our failures to bad luck. How do we get people to be more aware of the true role of of serendipity in their lives as opposed to merely thinking when it goes my way, it was all me. But if something goes yeah. wrong, ah, it's just bad Well, fortune. you could steer people to the
2: studies that show there, that there's that asymmetry. Uh, I, I suspect few people would want to read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually a kind of a perverse adaptive quality to the asymmetry. So, for example, if you believe that... When you succeed, it's because of your skill, not your luck. Then the next opportunity that comes along, you'll say to yourself, "Well, skill is a persistent trait. I had skill before I succeeded. There's no reason not to explore this opportunity. Uh, So that's good. You're 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 more likely to take the action that would lead to success. Yeah, but
0: isn't that how we end up with a Michael Jordan playing baseball?
2: Yeah, well, it's, there, there's never a strategy that works well all the time. You know, but with the bad luck uh, side of that, if you attribute your failures to bad luck, then you, you'll you try something, you'll fail, at oh, I was unlucky. Then another opportunity comes along, and, and bad luck is not a persistent trait. Mm-hmm. You'll say, oh, I was just unlucky last time. I'm going to try this time. There's no reason to think I'll fail again. So So the person who has that asymmetric view about good luck and bad luck may actually do better over time, than the person who's more realistic in his beliefs.
0: It's funny. It's, it's long been the case on Wall Street trading desks that they recruited uh, athletes. And a number of people have, have pondered this, and, and my best explanation for that is you can work hard all week, you can run the drills, memorize the playbooks, and on a Saturday you get a bad bounce or an unlucky call you have to get up on monday and brush yourself right. off and start all over which pretty much describes what what happens in the random walk on on wall street you have to be able to say that just was a bad bounce and right. start all over it it seems it, it's a little bit of hindsight bias it seems to fit the existing facts and it it sort of rationalizes it but i have yet to find a better explanation than that that asymmetrical asymmetrical way to shake off the bad news and, and take credit for the good news. One of the themes in the book is that uh, false
2: beliefs sometimes are adaptive for you. So when you're thinking about, is luck important in your life? Uh, let me read Duncan Watts's uh, blurb that he, he, he's a very distinguished sociologist. If your listeners don't know him, uh, run out and buy his book, Everything is Obvious, once you know the answer. Uh, it's a terrific, terrific, informative book. Uh, he writes, building a successful life requires a deep conviction that you are the author of your own destiny. That's absolutely right, by the way. I think if you think, oh, I'm a cork in the river, uh, woe is me, that's, you're not going to attack your life in a very effective way. He, he continues, building a successful society requires an equally deep conviction that no one's destiny is their own to write. Balancing these seemingly contradictory ideas may be the most important social challenge of our
0: time. And then he goes on to say nice things about the book. That's a fascinating um, way to look at it from bottoms up and tops down. Exactly. What, what works for an individual may not work for society. Yeah, what, what, we, what we should believe if we want to
2: be effective psychologically confronting the world may not be a
0: very accurate description of how the world works. So if inequality as an example is a natural outcome of and again I'm going to quote Maubasson, a path dependent outcome luck Exactly um what if anything should we do about that <clears throat>
2: One of the points I try to make in the book is that we haven't been investing for the future uh, the the kids who are growing up today without a lot of money in their families or having a hard time getting through school, they, they're handicapped from a very early age in terms of the training they get. It would cost money to do something about that, but the the point I try to make in the book is that those of us who have done well could easily supply the resources we need to do something about that without making any sacrifices that would be painful at all. And, and the idea for instance. Yeah, I had a conversation with a colleague. He he was afraid about the new taxes that were coming. I said, look, don't worry about them. People like us, it doesn't matter. He has a successful textbook. He's not going to spend everything he earns. Right. You know, I don't spend everything I earn. We have everything we need, right? What's at issue? Will we still be able to get what we want if taxes go up? He said, yeah, that's what he was worried about. Well, what do people like us want? We've got everything we need. We want something special and you want to be able to have a special celebration when your daughter gets married you Mm -hmm. want to have a, a house with a sweeping view of the lake a choice slip at the marina whatever it might be there aren't enough of those things uh you have to bid against other people like us to get them what happens if their taxes go up and our taxes go up who gets those things the same people as before
0: so and he bought this
2: uh, you know, I'm not going to say he bought it, but he, he seemed willing to think about it. But if if someone were willing to think about it, it it it's uncontroversial. You know, the 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 things that we care about uh, are defined very heavily in relative terms. Everybody wants to have a special occasion for his daughter's wedding. What's special? It's a purely relative concept. People today are spending thirty thousand dollars on weddings on average in New York it's 76,000
0: not not around here then 76,000 in yeah. Manhattan
2: why and it was 10,000 back in 1980 why have they gone up so much cuz other people are spending more and why is that because people at the top are spending more and it trickles trickles down but they're not bad people they just want to have a special occasion and special is relative if you spend way less than everybody else
0: spends then it seems like a, a kind of a two bit wedding you you use the example that people lovers in poor countries uh, the the when dating they give a single rose as a gift and it's it's well received but in wealthy countries if it's not a dozen roses it's thought of as, as you're being cheap and it's not the same sort of resonance.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's a familiar point. No, no one hears about examples like that and say, oh, that's not the way the world is. Uh, everybody knows that's the way the world works. So it's interesting that people resist the notion that uh, framing effects and context
0: matters as much as it does. So let's, let's take another example, something I enjoyed from the book. Where, where we were talking about how relative things are and how when the, the same tide goes up or down, it affects everybody equally. And, and use an example of, we have big tax cuts, which affords somebody to drive a Ferrari, but it's over these beat up, potholed, cracked roads. Had we not had such large tax cuts, if the tax cuts were a little smaller, Society can afford to pave everything and have nice, smooth asphalt. And at that point, you're driving a Porsche on a smooth, clean road, which overall is the better experience for the individual and what's the better experience for society. And the conclusion is the Porsche on the smooth, well-paved roads is better for everybody than a Ferrari on a horrible pothole road where you can't get out of second gear. You know, know, Barry, I have yet to meet anyone who... Who says, oh, no, that's
2: not right. I'd rather drive a Ferrari on roads riddled with foot-deep potholes. Nobody says that. Well,
0: the pushback would be it's not just the Ferrari, but it's all this across the whole board, and it's confiscatory, and we can't have high tax rates, and it's a whole philosophical digression. Right. But uh, I'm talking at a a, a marginal change sufficient to, I don't know, pay for the infrastructure we all use. And I'm a car fan. I, I like anything that goes fast, um, and I have been complaining about the roads for a long time. We've had a a gas tax that's been frozen in place since 1993, which leads to a question. Uh, something else came up uh, in one of your columns, which had to do with the, the anti-government uh, philosophies that say we can never raise taxes. We shouldn't be spending money. Government should be as small as possible. And that's how we end up painted into a uh, a gas tax that's unchanged for um, over twenty, almost twenty five years.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's just not in the interests of anyone to
0: have that rigid anti tax position. And yet, that's become almost the default for half of the politicians you, you hear
2: people say without any self-consciousness that taxation is theft and the presumption there seems to be i earned it it should be mine to keep well every country in the world has mandatory taxation what what's the position here that except somalia should... somalia is yeah. your exception Taxes should be voluntary like they are in Somalia. Do you want to move there? Nobody seems to be queuing up to move there. (laughs) Uh, So so if you don't have mandatory taxes, then you don't have a government. You don't have an army. You get invaded by some other country that has an army. Then you pay mandatory taxes to them. So so the interesting questions are what should we tax? How much should we tax it? Uh, All those things are ripe for discussion, but we don't seem to have any ability to discuss something that has the word tax in
0: it. I have a sneaking feeling that this coming election that might be a big issue and, and the fallout after this election might see some some interesting rethinks of, of pre existing thought processes. We'll have to see how that yeah, how we'll, that plays out. We'll we'll watch that with great interest, won't we? So back to um the Ferrari. Uh, you had a column in the Times that that I when I was researching this I found and thought was pretty interesting, which said conspicuous consumption is not so crazy. You know,
2: we, we're we're creatures of our inheritance. Uh, is it cold out? Well, if you ask somebody that in Miami where I grew up on a 60 degree day in November. They're not happy. They know it's cold out, it's a stupid question. But if you <laughs> ask somebody in, I don't know, Helsinki on a 60 degree day in March, they'll think you're stupid for asking, but the answers <laughs> The opposite. Of course, it's not cold out. So, yeah, context shapes our evaluations. You know, I lived in a two-room house with no plumbing or electricity the two years I was a Peace Corps volunteer in rural Nepal. Not for one minute did that house seem in any way unsatisfactory. But neither you nor i could live in that house here in the us without feeling ashamed mm-hmm. of our circumstances your kids wouldn't want their friends to know where you lived so so context is clearly important as a as a, a frame for making evaluations how am i doing you can't answer the question without a frame of reference how am i doing relative to what you know relative to people like me here and now how am i
0: doing and, and what is it about some of these um, luxury purchases that are either signaling events or, you know, the difference, again, to go back to the Porsche and the Ferrari, the difference between the Porsche and the Ferrari, it, it, at a certain point, it becomes harder and harder to justify each $100,000 increment for the next Milli, you know, the yeah. next tenth of a second. Yeah, once you're
2: up to the Porsche 911, that's a $150,000 car, you've got virtually every design feature that affects performance in any significant way. So if the Ferrari Berlinetta is a better car, some people will argue that it isn't. But if it is, it's at most just a hair's breadth right. better. Uh, and so you're not getting much in absolute terms. But if you're on a planet where the Porsche were the best car uh, and we could... Hook into drivers' brains. How happy are they about their car? They'd be just as happy as the as the drivers on the other world where the the Ferrari were the the, the best car, and and so you know it's the it's the subjective sense that you're driving something special that people are really willing to pay for. You know, if your if your car would get to sixty miles an hour in 1920, it would seem fast to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, if it got that. That fast now it's got to get there now the the Tesla gets there in 3.2 seconds right in
0: in in a ludicrous mode it's now under in fact the Tesla is faster than the Porsche and the Ferrari yeah which so is a the, huge the standards
2: are are very elastic that define special
0: and so this is subjective. It's relative, and the context makes a great deal of difference. Yeah,
2: and and collectively, we have some say over what the context is. Meaning? It's not in our interest to keep throwing tax cuts into pockets that will result in spending that just bids up the context. Uh, Why would an executive be happier in a world where everyone had a 50,000 square foot mansion in that circle than Mm -hmm. in a world where the mansions were only 40,000 square feet. And
0: and you use the example in in one of the books that if you ask people which would they prefer, if everybody has a 2,000 square foot house and yours is 3,000, or if everybody has a 6,000 square foot and your house is 5,000, and people take the bigger small house rather than the smaller big house.
2: Yeah. If the small house gets small enough, they'll flip. Right. right. But yeah, within a reasonable range, uh, I think people judge correctly that they're probably going to be happier about their house if it's not a relatively uh, inferior one in their local context.
0: That That's interesting. Um, la- last of the the Mobusaw questions. So most people understand luck at a very high level. How are we capable of of pinpointing the role of luck um, in, in very successful outcomes? Is there a way to identify, other than Bill Gates saying, hey, I was really lucky I went to this high school, I got this, IBM made this bad deal, which we took advantage of? Unless someone's admitting that, how could we really identify luck versus skill? You know,
2: it, it's it's interesting how you get people to think about the role of luck in their lives. And uh, there was a article on Mother Jones by Kevin Drum last oh, sure. week. Uh, he had seen a piece that was excerpted from my book in, on Vox, vox.com. And he was uh, quick to identify all the, the lucky things that had benefited him in his life, uh, but he was skeptical about my claim that telling rich people they'd been lucky would make them more willing to pay taxes. Uh, the claim <laughs> okay. in the book is that if you're more cognizant uh, of having been lucky, then you are more generous to sure. the next generation. And I wrote him back and I said, well, I agree. Just telling them uh, that they're lucky will elicit a reaction of anger and defensiveness, much as the, you didn't build that speech. Did. Right. You're telling people, oh, you don't belong where you are. Uh, but there's a, an interesting twist if you'll ask a successful person, can you think of any examples of breaks you've enjoyed along the way that completely disarms the anger and the defensiveness. People seem to immediately light up. They think about what you know, their, their past. If they think of an example of a break they had, they want to tell you about it right away. The more examples they can think of, the happier they seem to get. It's just a, a complete jujitsu maneuver. It, it, it has a, a dramatically different effect on how they they react to the idea that luck may have mattered in their, their lives. And, and so I, I, I wrote that up into a piece uh, with the title I like best of any piece I ever wrote. The, the title is ask, comma, don't tell. <laughs> that's ask interesting. People, ask people about
0: their, their lucky great. experiences. That's Don't ask, tell. Um, that, that's a variation on a Ben Franklin issue is instead of debating with people, he would agree with them and and ask them as to, you know, my position is wrong and I can't figure out, and he would elicit their help, uh-huh. and by the time they were done, they, they were- had convinced him that his position was was right. But there's a certain fact to having people volunteer themselves rather right. than, you know, the Socratic method has been around for a few thousand years, not for no reason. So let me jump to some of my favorite questions. Um, I was going to ask you about your background, but pretty much uh, out of the PhD, you taught math, and then you ended up at Cornell 20 years ago or so? How long have you been there for? I've been at Cornell since
2: 1972. I so, came right out of graduate school uh, and started my teaching career at Cornell, and I've been there ever since, except for various sabbatic leaves and the like.
0: So who are some of your mentors? There's one I have to ask, because I'm a fan of his work, but... I would say that the the two economists who have shaped my thinking
2: personally the, the most, by a wide margin even, uh, one would be uh, Tom Schelling, mm-hmm. a Nobel laureate in 1986, uh, a longtime Harvard Public Policy School professor. I think he, more than anyone, uh, had written clearly about why what it makes sense for us individually to do may not make sense for us to do when we think about it from the perspective of the groups we belong to. Mm-hmm. So all standing to get a better view uh, right no one sees better than if everybody remained comfortably seated that's kind of a trivial example of that sort but that's been a big uh, theme in my own thinking about uh, behavior and social organization uh, the the other economist who's had the most influence on me is ronald coase mm-hmm. who uh, it, it, also also also, no, he was University of Chicago. Okay, he was uh, also a Nobel laureate uh, and uh, wrote very little, actually, uh, just a handful of articles. But one, I think, is the most widely quoted and cited article of, of all time in economics: the problem of social cost, and it's 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 a way of thinking more clearly about what happens when somebody does something that has either negative or positive spillover effects on others. You make noise, it disturbs the neighbors. You drive a heavy car, you put others at greater risk of injury and death. Uh, It it used to be that uh, people thought about those kinds of issues in terms of perpetrators and victims, you know, there mm-hmm. were good guys and bad guys, and, and his insight was that, no, these are people whose interests, both legitimate, uh, are just in conflict with one another, and mm-hmm. their shared interest is to figure out the most efficient way of resolving their conflict, and that sometimes leads to very counterintuitive conclusions about what ought to be done.
0: So let me ask you about two other people uh, who were at Cornell. One is someone you reference in the book, uh, Ed Gramlich was uh, on the Federal Federal Reserve yeah, Board. Yeah, he was a member of the Board of Governors of the N- Fed. Very insightful, way ahead of the curve, criticizing subprime lending, predatory lending, and a whole slew of different things that uh, he brought to Alan Greenspan's attention. And Greenspan said... Don't worry, the marketplace will take care of it. And actually, Greenspan was right. Eventually, the marketplace did take care of it. A- after just, we went through the ringer. <laughs> right, just just not quite the way I think he anticipated. But you tell a wonderful story in the book about Gramlich and you on a ski lift.
2: Yeah, he, he came as a visitor my my fourth year when I was at Cornell. I'd written very little. I, I had uh, various uh, issues, had... Uh, sort of kept me from putting as much time and energy into my writing. So I was, you know, today they would fire somebody like me in year mm-hmm. three. Uh, then they kept me on just because I was a good teacher in the in a big class. that was hard to staff, but they would have fired me at next opportunity. I'm quite sure. But but uh, but Ned took an interest in my work. We became friends. He he offered uh, to publish a, a paper if I would write it for a volume he was editing uh, and and nobody else had, had shown any interest in what I was doing up until then. And so I happily agreed and wrote the paper. I was pretty pleased about it. I gave it to him and then uh, a day or two later he came to my office with a, a hangdog expression saying that the sponsor of the volume uh, that that the paper was to have appeared in uh, had called him to say the volume had been cancelled, and it seemed like bad luck to me. Uh, I sent the paper out to a very selective journal just on lark, and it got accepted for publication, which was uh, for me a way better outcome. Than a little bit of luck, than, too. than if it had gone in, into a, a an edited volume, which hardly anyone reads, and you know isn't isn't really a good career move. But yeah, I was incredibly lucky to get that. Paper accepted where it were, and and I had a string of papers that got accepted in quick succession with almost no delay. That's never happened to me since then. Uh, the later papers I've written, I'm sure, were at least as good as those early ones. But if if I'd had the usual editorial delays, even with them. Uh, I would have been fired the next opportunity.
0: So the lucky break that the edited journal is canceled, what was it, Econometrica? That uh, So Econometrica accepted did, my paper. Did that success beget the other subsequent? Well,
2: then I there was a quick uh, extension of the Econometrica paper that I thought to write. I sent it out. It got accepted quickly. I wrote three more papers the next summer. I, I sent them out for review. They got accepted in Quick succession by three of the top journals in economics, that never happens. You know, all my other papers since then have gotten rejected at least once, <laughs> many of them four times. Right. right? And when they accepted, it, it's after a year's delay or three rounds of revisions. So, so, so if
0: he didn't ask you to do this paper, you wouldn't have written it. If it wasn't canceled, you wouldn't have submitted it. And if none of these sort of random things didn't occur, that really ended up getting you tenure at Cornell. Yeah, which was, uh,
2: so far and away, a better outcome for me professionally than mm-hmm. what would have happened, uh, which I also know a little bit about. Uh, I would have had a very different life. Uh, quite except, fascinating. Except for that string of, of quite fortunate events.
0: So, so the other person outside of um, Gramlich is a person who wrote a book that started me down a path into behavioral economics, which is... Tom Gilgovic who wrote How We Know It Isn't So which I I found I don't even remember how I found it maybe a friend gave it to me way back when and it's it's not a layperson book it's a it's really a a, a little more detailed academic book but it makes clear that the way we perceive our own cognition is wildly wrong right. and that we're really just a series of errors waiting to happen um, and you, you, I believe in, I don't remember which book it was, you referenced some of. Yeah, Tom Gilovich
2: is, in fact, a very close friend. We've been collaborators for decades. Uh, he saved my life once. Uh, oh, really? There, there was a. Literally? A, literally, yeah. No, he and I uh, play tennis regularly. Oh, you mentioned this we, in the book. We were playing tennis one Saturday morning uh, in the second set. We were uh, seated on the bench during a changeover. He tells me this. I don't have any recollection of He says the next thing he knows, I'm lying motionless on the court, no breath, no pulse. He kneels to investigate, realizes this looks uh, not quite right, and he yells out for somebody to call 911, and then he flips me over onto my back and starts pounding on my chest. You know, you've seen that done. Sure. Sure. Many times in movies, so have I, so had he, he'd never been trained to do it. but Just started but pounding on your chest. He said uh, one of his Israeli graduate students who'd been in the military had told him once that if you don't break the victim's breastbone, you weren't trying hard
0: enough. Right. <laughs> so he, And did he,
2: he? he? No, he didn't break, break my breastbone, I don't think. Uh, they never told me if he did. But he got a cough out of me after uh, what seemed like forever, but then I I went dead again, and he was about to give up hope when in through the doors of the tennis facility comes an EMT team. They cut my shirt off. They put the paddles on me. They rush me to the hospital. They put me on a helicopter and fly me to a bigger hospital in Pennsylvania. They put me on ice overnight. Uh, Three days later, I'm beginning to uh, come out of the fog, and, and I'm told by the the medical people in Pennsylvania that I suffered sudden cardiac death. Just like that, not a heart attack, I, just... I, 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 I died on the tennis court. Uh, 98% of the people who, who don't get immediate attention Die. never uh, revive. Right. Uh, the 2%, they told me, the 2% who do make it, you don't want to see them. Oh, uh, really? They're, they're all kind of messed up, uh, typically.
0: Long-standing, uh, if ana- you're without oxygen, to the brain that, uh, that, that ha- causes
2: lots, lots of problems for you. And and uh, for some reason, I escaped all that. And the reason uh, had to have been that the ambulance came as quickly as it did. But that was the mystery. How did an ambulance come so fast when we were six miles out of town and the ambulances are dispatched way from the other side of Ithaca? And what I learned was that there had been two auto accidents close to the tennis center that had occurred before I collapsed. Two ambulances are well on their way to those accidents. One of them, the injuries aren't serious. So when the call comes to that one, they, they say, They're right Di- there. divert to the tennis center. We got something more important for you. And they were there. And except for
0: that, I'm, I'm a dead man. So not a coincidence you, you write a book on the role yeah, of right, luck ab- in life.
2: Write about what you know. That's what <laughs> they tell authors. And I, I tell people I'm probably the luckiest person they know. Maybe that's not true, but I'm certainly one of the luckiest. That,
0: that's pretty fascinating. Um, so let's talk about other books. What What are some of your favorite books that perhaps you haven't written, you have not written? Uh, uh,
2: Tom Schelling's book, uh, What's w- which I that? didn't mention the title of, uh, is Micromotives and Macro Behavior. All A- right. Absolutely wonderful book, uh, if you liked Macro uh, behavior, all right. If you liked Tom Gilovich's book, it's it's sort of aimed at that same slice of the market for mm-hmm. the intelligent, curious person. Uh, I mentioned Duncan Watts's book. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I actually have that at home. That is a fabulous book. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the Mona Lisa famous because it's a great painting? No says Duncan. He says, it's famous because it's famous. It's famous because it was stolen.
0: Prior to that, nobody it, really nobody knew what it was. Nobody gave
2: a damn about it until 1911. Then it was stolen from the Louvre. Uh, it Not was, a
0: big picture, by the way. Everybody it's a, thinks it's giant. It's
2: no big deal when you see it. At least right. that was my my reaction and his too. And so he saw that there were two uh, Leonardo canvases in the very next gallery Nobody seemed to be crowding around to look at them, but mm-hmm. there were 300 people elbowing one another aside to see the Mona Lisa. And so he did a little digging, and he found that until 1911, nobody cared about the Mona Lisa. Then it got stolen. Took two years for them to resolve the crime. They arrested the the a, Italian custodian who stole it. Then <laughs> again, the painting splashed across the newspapers all around the world. First time that had ever happened. And so now it's a symbol of Western culture. But <laughs> It's quite, pure, quite amazing. Pure chance that it got to be that. Uh, and what was the name of uh, Duncan's book? Everything is obvious, and then there's an asterisk and in parenthesis beneath its asterisk. Once you know the answer,
0: I- I'm going to have to take a look. I'm pretty sure that's sitting on, in my queue, wa- waiting to be to be read. So, so let me get to my last two favorite questions I ask all my guests. So a millennial or a recent college grad comes up to you and says, I'm interested in a career in economics. What sort of advice do you give them? I, I tell people to try
2: to think of a time when they felt completely immersed in some activity, uh, that the hours went by without them being conscious of time flying uh, by at all. And to try and find uh, a career where you would be doing that activity much of the time. Uh, if If you can find something that you can engage with at that level, you will become an expert at it because you'll care so much about it. It won't seem like you're working hard to become an expert. It'll just be an organic process. And if you wanna be a success, I think, becoming, developing deep expertise at something is the route to take in today's climate. We were talking about winner-take-all markets. You know, being the third best person at something isn't going to do much for you if you're the best at something, though. Even if it's something that not that many people care about, there's often a lucrative niche for you. At the very
0: least, you're going to be doing something you like. There's a number of studies that talk about uh, having an expertise, having a sense of control and yes. actually being able to, to affect the outcome that, that leads to worker satisfaction. Yeah. And, and so you're giving that exact advice um, to millennials. Ex- exact advice. You know, uh, Charlie Munger,
2: uh, Warren Buffett's uh, second in command, said that if, if you want to get what you want, a good strategy is to try to deserve what you want makes sense Uh, and and getting really good at something that's that's how you most likely to get what you want
0: my final question what do you know today about skill and luck about income inequality about economics that you wish you understood better in the beginning of your career 20 plus years ago
2: you you know most people as i uh, say in the book uh, tend to overlook the role of luck in their lives uh that hasn't been true of me, not so much because I think I'm more observant or, or perspicacious than the typical person. I think luck has had a much more obvious mm-hmm. effect in my life. i I would not advise anybody to organize his life the way oh. I've done. You know, I think I've stumbled into a, a career that's been in in so many ways just the right career for myself. Uh, I think. If if you're more systematic about it, and, and today I probably wouldn't have have succeeded. Uh, I think the doors start closing at younger ages now. Mm-hmm. You have to be uh, have credentials all in line even to get into a good school now. It wasn't so much true when I was, but I think yes, you know, finding something that you you like and and you can get lost in uh, would be the same advice I'd give to somebody almost at any age. So if you're if you're a parent and you've got kids. Uh, you know, kids don't like everything that they do, uh, and, and their reactions to the various activities that you urge them to try are instructive. So, so pay attention. Do they love something? You know, open some doors and see if you can get them more deeply involved in that thing that they love.
0: Thanks, Bob. This has been absolutely fascinating, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you, Barry. It was just an absolute pleasure for me to
2: get to come down.
0: If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see the other 90 or so uh, such chats that we've had. Uh, I would be remiss if I omitted Taylor Riggs uh, for helping to organize uh, each of these conversations and Charlie Vollmer, who is our uh, chief engineer here. Uh, You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.